Welcome to the Artics Podcast, where we're talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension ours, a better place. We'll explore how they are bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges today. My guest today is Chris Empson. He's the business manager at CACI. Chris talks about trust on today's episode. The need for trust in the development and sharing of data across the Ministry of Defence landscape, a complex landscape, one which covers everything from fueling to space, from typhoons to Lancaster bombers. But within that, he brings to light real initiatives where people are sharing information, both with each other and with allies, to ensure that we can be better, more confident, learn faster from our failures and deliver real change that's necessary not only at the operational tip of the spear, but also in the day-to-day landscape. One of the facts that Chris came out with was that 2% of the land in the UK is owned and operated by the Ministry of Defence. Theirs is a unique challenge and Chris has some fascinating insights on how we can solve it. I hope you enjoy. Chris! Thank you so much for joining us on the Artics podcast. Brilliant to have you on board. We've only met relatively recently. Um, It would be great if you could uh, just tell me a little bit about your background and your role at CACI. Yeah, so my name is Chris Empson. I'm now seven years in defence. I joined CACI uh, two years ago, almost to the day actually. Um, Prior to that, I was working for Tellers in the the cybersecurity function. Prior to that, I was working in kind of the, the cloud services provide, provider space. And so, yeah, I've been broadly in, in information technology, which is which is a very broad term for you know, almost almost 10 years now, most of my career. Prior to CACI at Talas, um, we were delivering services. Um, so that was, you know, cyber vulnerability scanning, generic kind of cyber consultancy to, to mostly to industry that supported defense. Um, and then was moved on to the kind of the, the Ministry of Defence account and found that delivering services into that area was was difficult. Um, I suppose the offerings that that, that, that Talas had put together at the time were, were very comprehensive, but were often met with the problem that I think we're probably going to discuss at length today, and that was, that was data. And it was the lack of hygienic data, um, disparate data, um, and also a, a willingness to change. Then I think it was fair to say there was even two years ago. I think the mod was was in a different place. I felt that it wasn't very agile, and and I it, at the time it felt to me at least that that what the Ministry of Defence was well, it was asking for it, but definitely needed some some agility from smaller organisations. And so I kind of decided to make the move into into product and. Um, was honoured when I, I got the job as business manager for defence at, at CACI IIG, so that's the Information Intelligence Group. It's a division of CACI in the UK, and I look after Mood Software. So Mood is uh, stands for Method of Object Orientated Design, um, which is an acronym that is probably meaningless, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, but essentially is um, you know a product that solves the problem that I alluded to earlier in in lots of ways and in, in kind of. Uh, cleaning data, making it more hygienic, uh, less disparate, um, creating relationships where possible. So, my background has been yeah broadly in in IT, but in in defence, excitingly. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the fact that you 
have seen a change just in the last two years that so I mean I think we've been talking about data for years if not decades you know and people talking about the need for data governance and data cleanliness and veracity and provenance and you know all of these pieces but something has changed in the arts right something has changed about what we expect from data how we expect to use it how we expect to access it what we expect to glean from it in a defense context yeah and i think what's in interesting is industry's been doing this for a long long time um you know the, the largest companies in the world have been making good use of their data for you know for, for nearly as long as some of them have existed and, and what's interesting about the ministry of defense is is that they produce an awful lot of data petabytes and petabytes of data maybe it needed an impetus to change and there were lots of failed programs that you know we've talked about at length i think before Ali, like ajax and 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 so the ministry at the time two years ago was under a great deal of scrutiny to, to prove to the taxpayer that the money that they were spending was going into the right places and and then there was an invasion you know in europe from russia that i think really opened the eyes of defense and and it brought that that scrutiny to to the fore and i think it really led the ministry to to undergo a bit of self-reflection and that's something that i don't think they've they've done previously and that's that's what feels to me anyway is that is the biggest change is that they've become they have to be an outward looking organization by design but i think that's traditionally what they've always done and and now it feels as though they are looking a bit more inward at you know what they can do with with all sorts of their operations but but at the heart of that i think really is data and the introduction of caroline bellamy's uh, chief data officer a, a woman who you know has spent 40 years in industry 30 years in industry has been refreshing and there genuinely has been a, a, a transformation and and still is a transformation kind of in train um, that we're all witnessing at pace. And I, I think that's where a lot of my fascination lies, is is this recognition that this isn't a thing that happens. It's not the adoption of our technology or, you know, another tick box of, yes, we've done it. Yay! Yeah. Uh, there is a there is an evolution happening here and a journey that we're going on um, because of the situational context that, that was going on. I mean, anyone can read the news there's not there's not any kind of insider insight going on yeah there, there's there's a this is a common problem uh, and a worldwide issue um but also that there is this focus from people like caroline bellamy and the defense digital team around how do you build better accessibility and with the correct governance and the right rules and and so on but where there's a democratization of access to data and where you can have greater confidence in the underlying data. And it seems to me that Mood as a product kind of sits in that space. Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. You know, Mood, Mood as, as I alluded to earlier, is is a product that I think um, when you introduce it to lots of people in defence, you know, whether at operator level or one-star, two-star, three-star level, it, it, it scares people quite often in, in, in initially because, um, you know, the Ministry of Defence still... Um, although it is going through this transformation, is there's there's a bit of trepidation around classification of data, security of data, where that data is going to go, who's going to see it, and and so what Mood does, what Mood does is is that it aggregates data, it relates data, um, disparate data sets, 
very dirty data sets that are often, you know, pieces of paper, Excel spreadsheets and our kind of ethos in mood is is well let's let's just give it a go. And so, you know, I can talk about some use cases if you like, but at its core, um, when you can start to to relate disparate data sets to aggregate them and then visualize them, you can you can provide what I would call actionable kind of intelligence. And that's the gotcha for somebody. Um, and and some the, the custodians of these data or gatekeepers you might call them once you've you've shown those gatekeepers that that kind of the strategic outcome that that you know undertaking uh, a mood project might do once you can demonstrate that eyes open in the room and light bulbs go on and and smiles appear I I think there are a couple of threads there that are are so timely. The first is that cultural shift of a kind of, so without meaning to trivializing it, moving from a no because to a yes if. So can can we do this? Can we share it? Can we relate these data sources? Can we uh, interoperate disparate data pieces? And moving from no because we have these security classifications to yes, if we have the right governance in place, if we have the right trust frameworks, then we can. And, and I think that's that's the first piece. And the second is then proving value quickly yeah i think we've we've all seen the large longitudinal projects some of which have stumbled i mean you made reference to some already but but actually proving value quickly helps build confidence and trust and clarity and so on so where are you seeing that what are some of the examples of of what that looks like i think what we've we've really experienced is that we try and relay the the sentiment um, that failure is not necessarily a bad thing, actually, and and you, in many cases, need to fail before you can succeed, and many in many cases you need to do that lots of times over um, quickly, and so um, I guess I could give you an example. Uh, we did some work with with um, the Operational Energy Authority. Um, to produce a, a digital twin for fuel movements on a Royal Naval Air Station. Now that in itself is is a is a complex problem. You've got hardware, helicopters. You've got fuel, a commodity more scrutinised than than any other in the world <laughs> at the moment, I think. Um, and then you've got people, and people are um, have personalities, and so <laughs> you know that that creates quite a complex ecosystem of of sort of personas and, and and assets and and so what what we did there was was we approached a, a base that we knew would would be better than others um through our own experience we're fortunate enough to have in the business um lots of ex-fleet air arm and lots of ex-naval officers and sure and they know you know that that insider knowledge is, has been useful and so in in that context what we did was we were really the data sets that we were working with were were fuel movements um, so fuel from bulk fuel installation to refueling vehicle and then to platform. And in this case, it was, it was Merlin, the Merlin helicopter. And so you can you can probably imagine that, that fuelies and loaders and pilots and people in charge of bases went, well, we don't want you anywhere near our data. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's ours. Don't touch it. It's very sensitive. We don't want any sensors in any fuel tanks fuels combustible remember and we go okay yeah we know that guys but we could just give it a go couldn't we could just try and 
they went, well, okay, we'll give you a tiny data set, but desensitize it. We don't want you to, you know, we don't want any of our live data or real data. And so that's what we did. We, we walked away and we, we, we produced a, a kind of a, a proof of concept to show that actually, you know, if on any given day of the week, let's take a Wednesday, there's 10 Merlins landing, using this digital twin and the data that, that was underpinning it, you could start to do some kind of predictive analysis and predictive modeling. And, and just doing that POC just once actually, with one refueling vehicle, one bulk fuel installation and one helicopter, and just showing the effect that the movements of, of those assets has on the volume of the other assets and the people involved in it. It produced a real kind of um, an eye-opening sort of moment for people because once you've proved it that that one time, and and by prove I mean you know if I've got to, if you use two helicopters and you've got one refueling vehicle and you've got two landing at the same time and one of them happens to break down, well that refueling vehicle is now going to have to work twice as hard to to refuel. Yep. And so that's a real kind of operational efficiency that you've identified there or inefficiency that you've identified there and then if you can if you can kind of abstract that to a fleet of helicopters and now you've got 30 Merlin helicopters landing on a Wednesday afternoon and you've got 10 refueling vehicles and two of your refueling vehicles break down and two bulk, bulk fuel installations are on fire you can then start to do some some real predictive analysis right and 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 show people that actually well, this is what I'm going to need if, when, what. So if I do have these helicopters landing on base on that day, how many refueling vehicles do I need? What happens if I lose one of those refueling vehicles to the to the ecosystem that I've talked about? What happens to the volume of fuel? How much volume of fuel do I need? And, and you can then abstract it again to bases across the nation. And the MOD, are, you know, they consume, as you can imagine, across 400 platforms or something that they operate an awful lot of fuel and so if you can start to find a way to to optimize that fuel usage waste less use more in the right place that's a real a real kind of benefit this is such a lovely example of the evolution of trust and that trust being both a technical trust you know do i trust the data is being used correctly and is protected and has all the right data governance but also trust in from a cultural perspective, you know, so am I happy that I am putting faith in this process and the outcomes and the value that it's giving me? And 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 we've seen that across a number of industry players. You know, in a C-suite, data is talked about as a strategic asset. An operator sees it as a gaseous byproduct. You know, it's that kind of, well, yeah. I guess some data is being created, but is it really useful? And so taking them on that trust journey is important. I think the other thing is is recognizing this scalability and adaptability of what you're talking about you go from can we understand an asset or an assets environment to learning in fleets at scale you know like okay well now i can start doing what if or differential uh, uh, analysis or probability models or whatever you know whatever you know choose your choose your data science um poison but that kind of okay well we've gone from a thing to an ecosystem of things and we're getting there by proving value at the points that we go rather than either trying to boil the ocean on let's digitize the entire fuel infrastructure or being stuck in well that's great but 
how much do I learn from knowing the loading habits of a single Merlin? Exactly, and I think you know, people like Jim, General Jim Hockenhull will will always say, "Don't lock our data away." That's coming right from the top. However, um, and the however is 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 that people are still locking data away. So there is a real, you know, we're still faced with it. And although I, you know, I'm I'm really positive about the transformation that 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 I think the ministry is going through at the moment. There is a real cultural challenge, I think, that the ministry is going through. And, and as you've, you've, you rightly pointed out, proving trust iteratively is, is what I think will, will get us to that, that kind of cultural shift. And, and in the same way that we, you, know, you can scale data, you can scale trust, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting idea, this idea of scaling trust. And I like that you tied it back to this idea of failure isn't a bad thing especially if you can fail faster, quicker and smaller. You know, yeah. like, you know if, 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 if whole decades-long programs are failing, that's a huge problem and, and there's, a, there's a big wave. But can we try this? Can we give it a go, as, as you described it? I see as a, a matched pair with the how you evolve and scale the trust. And I love the idea of, of, of scaling trust in the same way you scale data. I mean... The two things it reminds me of are you mentioned things like AI, and it's amazing that AI learns through failure, not success, right? Absolutely. I mean, like, like it, you yeah. know, mo- most machine learning or narrow AI has some element of when they used to do it with computer games, like just play this game and I won't tell you the rules, I won't tell you how to win, play it. And what it does is it fails really, really quickly yeah. a lot of times and then it works it out. But the other is that. That's how the military trains, right? No, no one joins the military knowing how to do all the things that are required for frontline service. So what you do is you take someone onto a firing range and say, I mean, there are other jobs in the military, obviously, but you take them onto a firing range and you say, okay, shoot the target. And then we will feel feedback now. Like this is, this is how you should be doing it. Yeah. And let's look at the target and, okay, you're high and, high and left or your grouping isn't tight enough or whatever it is. Okay, let's iterate quickly on it. You don't say, let's spend two years discussing what the perfect shot looks like. Let's put a lot of bases into it. Now take the shot. Oh, you missed. Well, that program was a failure. Let's move on. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that that, you know, in days gone by was the way the ministry operated, actually. Well, when you look at things like AI, as you've alluded to as well, it is all about failure. You don't get good AI unless it fails and and learns. And you will have almost definitely heard of AlphaGo, right? Yeah. Um, which is a you know one of the most interesting kind of applications of it because there's that that moment in that documentary where this this AI engine makes a move that is just completely inexplicable, and the man has to leave the room, I think, and <laughs> light, light a cigarette and and think, crikey, you know, and that sort of messaging that we're getting from from industry and, and from art and the emergence and, and I and I'm, I'm it's at my behest that I call AI an emergent technology because it's not it's been around for, for years but for the ministry I think it is an emergent technology and as you start to see the benefits of those failures and 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 if you can prove those failures with technology over people actually it's not because if people are failing that's that's you know it's a personal subject but if technology is failing the technology is accountable. And so I think that's what's really helping drive that cultural shift. That's really interesting about the difference between who's doing the failing. Because you know, the defence industry is 
largely driven by purpose, right? I mean, pe people are in an industry because they believe in, in what it's doing and where it's going and the challenges that it's trying to overcome. So the recognition that it's not like people aren't bad actors as a, as, okay. as a near universal rule. Yeah. People are not bad actors, nor are they incompetent or unskilled or whatever else. So this isn't a people failure. It is a technology or aspect failure that we need, actually need to encourage. And I think the AlphaGo piece um, is so interesting. So this is, a for anyone that doesn't know, this is AI learning to play uh, the board game Go. Um, and the reason I love Go as an example is because it is a ludicrously simple game yeah. you know, in terms of just black and white counters played on a, a square board and, and you're placing them and flipping and changing them as you go. Yeah. The reason it was almost impossible for AI for so long to do anything with it is because there are trillions, more than, Googleplexes of possible combinations and patterns and tactics and whatever else, where there are a huge number in chess, but there are set number like there is a set direction, uh, movement, patterns of play, and so on that you that were quicker to trade. I mean, still very clever, don't get me wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Outside my domain of expertise, but <laughs> but you could get there, and we got there with Deep Blue and Gary Kasparov and so on. But AlphaGo was the simplicity actually is part of the complexity. You, know, you can move in, in, in all these different ways. And I feel that way about the military, is actually that you've got so many moving parts, inter interoperable and integrated operating environments, um, the different modes of operation and how you're operating, the moments of stress or shock, you know, an incident happens and you have to respond to it. But then longitudinally, you know, the, the Ministry of Defence is both looking after, and, and back to your fleet air arm example, people, processes, infrastructure, um, serving personnel, have accommodation that's owned by the MOD, schools in, in some situations that are run by the... You know, it's an incredibly complex system that can move in any one of... A Googleplex of ways. So yeah. how do you how do you train it? So I think I think it's a great comparison for what might seem, from a technological perspective, relatively simple, rapidly becomes incredibly complex. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's the crux of it for me. I think is is that if you can if you can remove the human aspect of transformation, because digitally the MOD is transforming, culturally it is also transforming. But if you can if you can stop holding it an individual to to account over over a failure and actually point at a technology you know that makes that cultural transformation a, a much easier conversation to have and and rightly so you know as, as you've said it's you know it, it's a it's an incredibly complex organization institution but i think it you know in that complexity um there is there is actually quite a lot of simplicity as well and in pockets, actually, the Ministry of Defence is really, really good at exploiting data and intelligence, you know, fantastic at exploiting data. Some of the best in the world, I'd argue. Um, you know, in, in kind of surveillance as well and, and things like that. But, but also even the more simplistic in, in kind of space optimization, they've become much, much better at, at doing, at solving those kinds of problems. And, and so... I think to your point that yes, it's a it's a huge organisation, but if you can show people where these pockets of kind of success are happening, I think that that brings to the fore that actually, whilst there are still failures that that need to be addressed, we need to pick up on the on the pockets of success and introduce them to each other. 
and and that seems to me to be crucial that introduce them to each other I yeah mean, we've seen from defense digital a lot of language around data meshes and data fabrics you know can we Dude, start to yeah, weave yeah. these things together yeah can we can we create tapestries of of information and visibility and views from those from where it is working um but also with variability of outcome as well you know in the same way that that we've we've seen in in some other uh, other domains a kind of this isn't about automation of all things but about presenting the right data to the right individuals to make the right decisions and that might have different forms for different people presumably yeah and i think <sighs> tapestry is a, a lovely way to put it actually um a tapestry of data i think caroline bellamy would like that over, da <laughs> over data fabric um but yeah you you're you're right and and i think um we saw the same thing with with um with another product that we you know mood is a is a software that comes in two forms it's used by architects to model to model data um and and create meta models of data and identify operational inefficiencies or cost inefficiencies or departmental inefficiencies um but it's also used to to visualize data to to people that aren't architects aren't right. technologists and um, a really good example of that is is a product that, well, an application that was underpinned by Mood that became name, known as Seller. And I think every time we we come up with one of these these products, we just open the Latin dictionary. <laughs> Chamber, yeah, that's Seller, yeah, that yeah. works. Okay, um, and so, that, so we we produced what is essentially a facilities management tool. That's, right, that's basically what it does. But the MOD own you know two percent of the UK's total land mass. That's an enormous number when you think about it. Millions and millions of acres of land, ranging from you know car parks to you know firing ranges, barracks, hangars, airfields, whatever whatever you want. Um, to get a handle on that estate is no mean feat. You know, it's a lofty ambition. So what we did was again start small, fail fast. So we worked. I think the first base we worked on was cool droves i want to say um and we looked at you know the space they had there what attributes were important about that space what that space could hold in terms of actual volume and capacity capacity you know any other attributes does it does it need to handle hazardous materials yeah can you drive a forklift in it you know something as simple as that and so we did that what we showed was that actually once you've aggregated those data sets about capacity and about volume and about shelving and about forklift driving and all of that good stuff, you can immediately see that this base in isolation isn't appropriate for lots of different movements of, of goods um, or, or weaponry or, or you know, whatever else the, the ministry might, might want to move. Inventory, I guess, is, is the word I'm looking for. And then... Once we showed that kind of value to them, they went, okay, great. Well, if we can optimize the space usage for one, a tiny fraction of that 2% of the total, start loading more sites into it. We've done cold rows, let's do Yeovilton. You know, let's move on to Bryce if we're gonna do the RAF. Let's move on to Abbey Wood. Let's move on to, you know, all of the, all of the MOD sites across the nation. And we started that project in 2000 and, and I think we've all still got a bit of pandemic fever for want of a better phrase because it feels I can I can never remember when when it when it started. <laughs> um, I think it was about 2018. 
but right at the beginning of that other kind of world-changing moment, Seller came into into effect. And its first job, because the military were employed to, to help deliver personal protective equipment, its first job was to optimise the usage and storage of the Ministry of Defence's estate of, of buildings to store that PPE and then roll it out to the people that needed it. And that's that's a massive win for the MOD. Massive, massive win. And has created a now a a tool that is, is being taken to, to NATO, you know, hopefully in, in the not too distant future. Um we'll be looking at joint strategic bases um to look at space optimization in, in coalition missions and in NATO missions and and that's where, you know, it's why we've sort of started talking actually is because that's another problem. You've got, you know, trilateral, bilateral conversations going on, operations going on, but you've got to maintain sovereignty. And so, you know, what you guys do in, in kind of creating the plumbing between that those data sets, um, surfacing it to the right people, making sure the right people see what they need to, when they need to see it, you know, is a, is a huge kind of strategic enabler for, for, for the ministry. And it sounds, you know, on the face of it, kind of a boring topic, space optimization. Who gets excited about that? I do. Well, I, and, and that's that's what I love about this is that it's almost that kind of use case agnostic moment. If you can start, if you can go on that journey, if you can start evolving the trust, if you can start evolving the technology, then you may start with a bunch of users who have a bunch of specific use cases. You know, yeah. we're, we're trying to work out the best way to store spares or maintenance equipment or whatever else. Yeah. Okay, great. If you can create the right, environment and ecosystem of components with the right metadata so data about data you know not just this is a description and a and a feed that says 34 square foot or well that that makes a big difference whether it's a nuclear bunker or an open field on exmoor or yeah whatever it is indeed so so actually having the right description and the right information so you can make the right decisions then actually you go from this may have come from a quartermaster expecting X and then it moves to actually a global pandemic has broken out and how do we store, move, maintain, uh, optimize the provision and um, correct management of PPE equipment. But also you've touched on this continuing scale piece. You know, th this isn't a monolithic one size fits all. This is, you know, this is, everyone plays the same rules or, or they don't play at all. Yeah, You're actually creating this interoperable ecosystem of pieces and parts and so on that can be adapted for different use cases, but can also, on that NATO piece, I mean, so um, we've spoken about this, but I've been fascinated listening to both NATO and the US Department of Defense. Um, so uh, Dr. Craig Martell from the Department of Defense and Rear Admiral Nick Wheeler on NATO side talking about data accessibility and saying, you know, this needs to be a sovereign individual nations, the 31, soon 32 uh, countries that are part of NATO, have the ability to set their own rules, but to come to a place and an ecosystem where they can play, where they can make, to your point about, come on, guys, do it. They can make data accessible under the right conditions to the right people at the right time, but also that they can then use that accessibility to allow organizations such as CATI to create insights, to create visualizations for operators to consume, but then push those back into that same accessibility layer so that the next person who might have a completely different use case, you know, so you're, you know, you haven't created a stovepipe solution of, 
well, now a quartermaster at Bry's can better optimise storage before loading it onto the back of a transporter plane. You've created something that another user can come to and go, oh, if you've got that insight, then I could add my bit of the world and my bit of the story. Yeah, and I think it's a great point because then you you kind of created this virtuous data loop, I guess. And you're, you're absolutely right. If you, if you abstract the idea, all we're doing is taking data about data you can you can apply that to you know to to thousands of different use cases as, as you've rightly pointed out if you can put that data in in the right place you know as as we've said about you know classification and all that good stuff then anybody can exploit it for their own use case and and if you are an architect or even if you're not an architect at mood at, not at mood at mod you can request a license from CACI and you will be issued one and there but for the grace of God you go to try and, you know, to, to, to solve your use case. And we see that all over the ecosystem. You know, there are upwards of 160 plus repositories doing things from stuff like, you know, CBRN to LANGBAD, as, as it's known, ground-based air defence. Um, you know, it's used in, in that context. I can't talk about what it's used for in that context, but you can you can probably imagine. It's used for not only doing kind of refueling digital twinning, it's used for just monitoring stock levels of fuel, monitoring fuel holding assets. And then you can look at, you know, another fleet of, I don't know, let's take Typhoon, right? Fantastic airframe. My favourite. And uh, and I, I spend quite a bit of time at Lossy Mouth and quite a bit of time at Coningsby, mainly because I'm a 30-year-old child. But <laughs> <clears throat> And there's nothing that gets me more excited than the roar of two, you know, typhoon engines taking off one after the other. But but there, what we've what we've done is Moody's created a, a model for for information exchange because these these platforms need to and in the coalition context, air policing is a really good example that we're involved in at the moment, just outside of this hot war that we've yep. kind of talked about um, in Estonia. We're involved with with the Germans. We're involved with the French, I believe, and 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 ourselves. And so you've got three NATO partners there that are operating, cooperating, um, and they all need to talk to each other. And they all need to talk to each other over you know VHF, UHF, whatever. There is information being exchanged between platform, air traffic control, command air, air operations center. And and that's a complex picture, actually. And and then when you introduce, you know, allies, it becomes increasingly more complex. So in that use case, Moon's just being used to to literally visualize those those kind of information exchanges and see what happens if we get rid of one. What does that do to the rest of the ecosystem? You know. VHF doesn't work anymore because for for whatever there's been some some interference or you know the pilot the pilot's microphone isn't working something like that you know in that use case it, it provides a, a huge amount of of strategic capability because before you go on sortie or you go on operation you know exactly what information protocols you need before before that commences and that's hugely powerful Chris, you're slightly blowing my mind on some of this. I mean, not, not least because I, I can hear our founders, Paul and Mark, in my ear, or the inventors of IOTICS, Paul and Mark, in my ear, talking about the fact that this is a spectrum that's needed, You know, that there is value in just interoperating at a metadata level, understanding those metadata relationships, understanding the assets and models you have that relate to the real world. There's then 
a level along from that. I'm not going to say down or up because it's just different, but there's an end of use case, a bit like your space optimization, where we have some metadata and we might have some data about current storage levels or what's it, you know, is the space empty mm. or not type pieces, which again, you can bring a whole slew of use cases to. I mean, yeah. I remember um, maybe 15 years ago now, more, there was a lot of debate about the space within an ISO container and how could you optimize it for military logistics in terms of number of man day support ration packs and how you transport them and, and you know, could you get to a unit of soldier fighting force deployed overseas and how did you start building up those units but you know absolutely well let's start looking at what that looks like as a use case and then down into the kind of streaming data bit of well actually this is something where we need to know super dynamically it's not just a stock level but we might look at flow rates or throughput or leakage detection or you know whatever, yeah. whatever it might be yeah. where we need some element of right time streaming data but it's about the right information the right level of information at the right time for the right use case yeah the reason i was just smiling when you were mentioning Coningsby is because Coningsby is a great example of the almost unique complexity the ministry of defense has yeah for anyone that doesn't know, RAF Coningsby is in Lincolnshire. It's a base uh, for the Typhoon yeah. uh, Air Defence, uh, an air defence um, squadron. 4-1-T-E-S, I think they are. It is also the base of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. It is indeed. So on one base, you have current fifth generation fighter. And then at the other, <laughs> at the other end, you have a number of Spitfires and a Lancaster bomber. Yeah. Um, that are maintained and serviced and fueled, and so when you're talking about oh, what do the fuel infra what does the fuel infrastructure at RAF Coningsby need to look like? You've both got fifth and sixth generation fighter requirements and fueling for whatever the propulsion system looks like and whatever it's doing, and the greening of that system and sustainability. And at the other, you're like at some somewhere we have to store the fuel that enables a Lancaster bomber to fly over on jubilees and at air shows and whatever else. Yeah. Like that, that's not a problem that a lot of industries or sectors have when thinking about operations, storage, capacity, et cetera. No, it's not. And yeah, I think there are probably lots of those use cases in, in the ministry actually. But yeah, I mean, it, it it's a fascinating place, Coningsby, because, you know, every, every time I've been there, as I, as I said earlier, you are talking over the roar of engines all day long and, and 41 TES are based out of there, so the Test and Evaluation Squadron. So the pilots are nutcases. <laughs> you know, most jet, fast jet pilots are nutcases anyway. These guys fly the planes to the envelope, right, and then past it, and they try and break them. And then at the same time, you've got, you know, arguably two of the most beautiful airframes ever made, you know, sat next to them, you know, the Spitfire and, and the Lancaster Bomber. And... They don't use the same fuel. <laughs> no. One's got a gas turbine engine <laughs> and one's, you know, a prop. And and so you're right, you know, Jubilees, 100-year memorial, you know, you always see, you know, Farnborough most years, you see that Lancaster bomber. And, and so they are managing the fuel and they're managing it quite effectively at Coningsby, actually. And, and they're a really good example of an airbase in the UK that's doing doing a good job of, of how they operate their, their kind of fuel usage and optimization. And and I think, you know, that, that whole fuel piece talks to talks to something that should be front and center for everybody actually at the moment. You know, we are there's a hot war in Europe. The world is also just getting hotter, literally. And so the nation has got its own goal of, of net zero fifty. The Ministry of Defence has to meet that goal as well, whether they like it or not. And 
you can often be disheartened by by going to you know conferences as you and I do very often, and you know you hear the URAF say, "Well, combat aviation is going to be around for the next hundred years," and you know the navy like diesel because it's dense and <laughs> you can get it anywhere, and the army of starting to move into kind of the electrical vehicle space the the point remains you've got to do better with your fuels guys you've got to you've got to stop i i think you've you've said it that what's great is that there are these pockets i mean yeah the jet zero initiative and sustainable air fuel and so on um i know that rolls royce did some work um earlier this year where they they flew a, a transporter plane on sustainable aviation fuel i was really impressed actually listening to some of uh, we were both at dsei a biannual conference, listening to some of the especially senior naval officers talking about sustainability and not as a greening for greening's sake, but absolutely the world is getting hotter. That is having political and economic impacts on where we will fight and what we will fight over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is this is the reality. And as a result, the need to change operation conditions, the need to change what good looks like. You're already as CACI doing it, doing amazing innovative stuff, helping those pockets. I hope I'm not doing them a disservice, but those areas um, to go from start looking at makes data, start understanding the relationships. In some cases, starting understanding the underlying data as well. Where next? I mean, what's what's the stuff? It's all exciting, but what's the stuff that's exciting you on the on the sort of near future? So the fuels piece will always be exciting for me. If we could make the, the Ministry of Defence more efficient in the way it uses its fuel, fantastic. You know, we've got places like Bryce on the pipeline now, Lossies on the pipeline as well, I believe. So that's, you know, I'll put that to one side, but it's exciting for me. I think the next exciting thing for me is is optimising fleets of, of assets, platforms, um, because we're very good at building very capable vehicles, tanks, planes, helicopters. What I think we're not great at is is knowing how many we need and how many we need when and we're not we're just not doing a good enough job and and there's a there's a, a difference to me between i think lots of people think they're interchangeable i think they're, they're totally different actually available and ready are very different things mm. available means yes you can start it up ready means you can start it up and it'll go flying or yep. you can put it to sea and so what we've started looking at is proof, proof of concepts around um the data to do with the platform itself so flight hours let's let's take merlin again it's, it's this beautiful helicopter look at flight hours components how long each component's been on on the platform how long the pilot's been flying it for who is the pilot you know how how many flight hours has he got where's that that platform been has it, has it been in the desert has it been in the jungle has it been at sea where has it been you know has it been exposed to salt water these are all really you know discrete data points but actually using some something like mood you can start to relate those data points and then you can start to optimize an asset so you know does this component need changing sooner or can we leave it for a little bit longer to maintain its readiness and then you can, again, kind of scale that to the fleet, right? And, and you can look at all of those data points that, that, that are many and complex, but scale them to the fleet so that the commander at JHC or, you know, Joint Helicopter Command or, or wherever, whatever flying squadron, can log in on a Monday morning and 
he can optimize his fleet so he can say i've got two in service you know i've got two that have just come back from the desert i've got two that have just come back from the jungle i need to operate in northern i don't know northern spain tomorrow okay well i know now how many helicopters i've got ready yep. to go and that's that's a really interesting piece for me and and something that we're kind of in discussion with I think that's brilliant. I, I mean, I, I, I absolutely see the distinction between availability and ready. I, we have seen elsewhere. I mean, um, at Iodix, we did some work a long time ago with Rolls-Royce Power Systems looking at trains and the mm. difference between those running through high pollen areas. You know, so on a specific day, at a specific time, is there a high pollen count? Yeah. Well, then the air filter will need changing sooner than this almost identical unit running on the same physical bit of track that did not go through a high pollen area. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't need to be really super granular. You didn't even need to sense, uh, you know, to your point about people being concerned about putting sensors inside fuel tanks. Yeah. You didn't need to sense the engine or the train or or the or the filter. You just said, well, we know where the train is. We know whether or not the power unit is running. And we know from other sensors whether or not there's a lot of pollen in the air. Well, we can now make inferences which help us make better decisions. Yeah, And that ability to scale those to learning in fleets at scale where you can see and optimize to enable our personnel and our defense capability to be more ready more often with more at their disposal seems to me an incredible mission that you, you're undertaking. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we spoke about it the other day, you know, we, we've always been known as a, an expeditionary kind of armed forces. And, and, and I think in that, we've also been quite reactionary. I think that can no longer be the case. I think that's been proven that, that there's there's now a conflict in, in the Middle East and still the conflict remains in, in, in Ukraine. And, and so we're talking about, you know, the, the, the sharp end of the stick there, the, you, know, the, you know, the deployed context, I guess you, you could call it. But I think whilst I could, I could wax lyrical about, you know, helicopters and airframes and things like that, I think what's even more important Sadly for me, well, not no, it's not sad. It's 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 as exciting actually. It's it's getting process right. Yep. And process is something that is marred. You know, the Ministry of Defence is it's, it's been bogged down by process since its inception because it has to it has to operate in that way. It has to be accountable. It has to be evidenceable. You know, referenceable. And so, a lot of the work we do is actually quite back officey. Right. And and but in support of that other mission, yeah. And the back office kind of stuff is is looking at these processes, you know, JSPs, JSMs, you know, joint service manuals, joint service publications that are huge documents that have got you know hundreds of pages with lots of processes in them, lots of process steps that need you know one man to look at and go through and produce a bunch of artifacts and go and speak to general, you know, so and so over there and. And Air Commodore this over there, and 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 that that takes an awful long time. Well, what we've done in you know in Army HQ, for instance, is with the JSMs. You know, new major enters post, and he's put in charge of something like the CCR or the UOR. You say urgent operational requirement, CASP. Um, so capability acquisition support plan. I think that stands for. Um, those are very very complex processes. Yeah. All we've done there is digitise those processes so that, that the new major who comes into Army HQ uh, over at Andover, you go, oh, I don't have to read this, you know, Bible of, of processes. 
I can just log on to Mood. Yeah. Look at the process. Look at each step. Who do I need to talk to? Interrogate it. What artifact do I need to produce? Well, it'll produce the artifact for you. Actually, here's the document that you need to you need to fill out. On to the next step. On to the next step. And then you know, process done. And that's created a massive amount of efficiency within Army HQ. And and I love it. It is very easy to get caught up in the in the big bits of metal. Yeah. And the big bits are there. But that optimization, improvement, and efficiency in the business space rather than simply the battle space yeah. and how they interplay is fantastic. Chris, I've loved the conversation. Absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for Chris coming in today. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you to Kennington Podcast Studios for hosting us for this production. Thank you to Snaffle Podcasts for all their editing and thank you for listening until next time